This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Dr. Marilyn Bull uh, is the Morris Green Professor Emeritus, Department of Pediatrics, Indiana University School of Medicine, and Neurodevelopmental Pediatrician at Riley Hospital for Children. She is the lead author of the American Academy of Pediatrics Clinical Report, Health Supervision for Children and Adolescents with Down Syndrome, which was just published in 2022. Dr. Bull will discuss Down syndrome, new guidance for care of children and adolescents. Thank you. Um, it is my privilege today to share with you aspects of care um, that will hopefully be helpful in care of um, children and adolescents with Down syndrome and their families. Next slide. Um, I have nothing to disclose. Slide. And the Learning objectives for today include counseling families with a prenatal or a newborn diagnosis of Down syndrome, as well as um, methods of providing effective uh, medical care for children and adolescents, and very importantly, knowing where to access a summary of Down syndrome-specific care and resources that are helpful to families. Next slide. Um, much of my information comes from the a clinical report published in May of 22 by the American Academy of Pediatrics and their Council on Genetics. While I was privileged to be the lead author of that document, it was truly a team effort with my co-authors and the Council on Genetics. And it um, is available to you um, and the um information that's provided in your syllabus for access and more thorough assessment. Next, next slide. So why is this important? Well, Down syndrome is the most common chromosomal cause of intellectual disability, and it occurs in an estimated 1 in 800 live births, with over 200,000 individuals affected in the United States. Additionally, life expectancy in Down syndrome has markedly increased from an age of about 30 years in 1973 to the current most recent data in 2020 of age 60. Next slide. Prenatal detection, additionally, is becoming more common. As parents elect for sex determination, they also are maybe informed that the infant has um, is at high risk of having a Down syndrome. And this can be very helpful for the care of both the mother and the baby. Uh, prenatal detection allows diagnosis of co-occurring conditions such as congenital heart disease through echo, fetal echocardiograms, um, ultrasound high resolution can detect um, gastrointestinal anomalies, um, uh, renal abnormalities, as well as uh, even cleft palate. So this can be used to improve the care for both the mother and the baby and provides an opportunity for the clinicians and the family to choose the optimal delivery arrangement it also provides opportunity for clinicians to offer parent-to-parent -parent contact and support resources as the family anticipates the birth 
of a baby with Down syndrome. Next slide. <clears throat> so the maternal test is um, for prenatal diagnosis is by cell-free DNA, and this is not diagnostic. It's highly effective in detecting 99.7% and has only a 0.4% false positive rate, but it is still a screening test and it requires diagnostic testing, which would be either amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling for specific diagnosis. If not detected prenatally and diagnosed, a karyotype is required for diagnosis after delivery. And while a chromosomal microarray analysis, CMA, can confirm a trisomy, it does not determine the genotype, and a karyotype is critical for provision of genetic counseling. Slide. Recent uh, marked improvement in research has resulted in um, increased awareness of co-occurring conditions in Down syndrome. And this is not for you to understand from this slide, but um, for references in the document um, of the clinical report. And these increases um, show sensory um, issues such as vision, hearing, um, autism, um, and even moya moya disease. Next slide. The most um, physical exam is the most critical sensitive test for diagnosis of Down syndrome in the first 24 hours of life. Slide. These include, um, next slide, please. These include um, findings, including a deep helical crease, a single palmar flexion crease. Next slide. Um, a absent or small middle phalanx of the fifth finger, cutis marmorata of the skin, which is a modeling. Next slide. And even diastasis recti. Um, and yet it is the general impression of hypotonia, mid-face hypoplasia, um, that uh, leads to the clinician awareness of the possibility of diagnosis of Down syndrome. Next step. <clears throat> the important components, parents tell us, the single most impactful information is when they receive the diagnosis and how that diagnosis is impacted. Every family of a new baby needs to hear congratulations. Additionally, there are many aspects of imparting the diagnosis that families have shared with us, and I've included a few here, um, referring to the infant by name, having the baby present, if possible, meeting with the family as soon as that diagnosis is suspected, and then wherever possible, having a support person present for the mother, and always giving up-to-date and accurate information and offering connection to other families and resources if the family would like. Next slide. <clears throat> Following that initial diagnosis, 
it's important to do some follow-up, and that includes confirming the laboratory diagnosis and reviewing that karyotype when parents, um, whenever it's, well, as soon as it's available. I always give the parents a copy because they'll need that um, potentially for financial resources and other um, resources in the, as the child um, moves, and it's easy to get um, as the, at the neonatal period. We need to offer a referral for genetic counseling if that wasn't done prenatally. And in this era of hospitalist care, we want to ensure a smooth transition from inpatient to the primary long-term care. Next slide. Um, <clears throat> the medical conditions that are important to credit include in, in the neonatal period, of course, is an echocardiogram. Um, and it's essential, even if that fetal echocardiogram was normal, because there's a 50% incidence of cardiac defects and murmurs in babies with Down syndrome are often not detectable. There's an increased risk of pulmonary hypertension, which alters our ability to hear murmurs. And our cardiologists um, may um, re early repair of heart defects is more than the typical infants is often recommended. And pulmonary hypertension can actually occur even in the absence of heart defects. Next slide. Um, Hematologic issues um, are important to concern, and I have bolded throughout this talk some of the new things that have been included in the 2022 health guidance. Obtaining a CBC with a differential in the first three days of life is essential because um, transient abnormal myeloporesis, or TAM, previously recurred to, referred to as Abnormal myeloprolific disorder occurs in about 10% of infants with Down syndrome. And while this usually regresses spontaneously, it can be um, severe, uh, cause severe problems in infancy, but it's important to counsel families that TAM or uh, has an increased risk up to 30% for leukemia, which is higher than the general population of children with Down syndrome. And managing TAM um, with subspecialty guidance is critical. Um, while the newborn hematologic findings are common and often um, subside, macrocytosis persists in up to one-third of, in, of individuals with Down syndrome so that the MCV um, is um, not an accurate assessment um, for a screening tool. Next slide. Leukemia is, of course, a great concern to all parents, and they have heard that there is an increased risk in Down syndrome, which is true for both acute lymphoblastic leukemia and acute myeloblastic even the absence of TAM. But the, that overall risk is relatively low, about 1%. And it's reassuring to share with parents that the treatment for leukemia and Down syndrome is very responsive to the resources that our oncologists have. So we also reassure parents that we obtain an annual CBC and discuss signs and symptoms of what they should call to the attention of their clinician um, if um, they have concerns. New in the 2022 document is a discussion of solid tumor risk, which 
For example, breast cancer is much decreased and occurs less frequently than in the general population. And that's true for solid tumors with one exception, and that is testicular cancer, which occurs not in high incidence, but slightly greater than the general population. So it's recommended that we establish a pattern of examining testicles in boys at every clinical visit and potentially making arrangements and discussing with the family that that the testicles be looked at by a trusted adult um, throughout um, the lifespan because individuals with Down syndrome may not recognize or call attention to caregivers the um, any changes in the testicles. Next slide. So anemia is not increased in Down syndrome, occurring in about 1% to 2%, as is in the general population. But iron insufficiency or deficiency is increased. Um, and the remember I told you that the MCV is not a useful screen. So <clears throat> the change in this document and bolded here is that we assess annually with a CBC, with a differential, and either a ferritin and a CRP um, or a serum iron and a total iron binding capacity. Iron deficiency, um, have, we've been taught by our sleep specialists, can be associated with restless sleep. And we could consider treating with iron if the ferritin is less than 50 micrograms per liter. Next slide. In summary, um, CBC with a differential in the first three days of life and annually a CBC with a differential and either a ferritin and a CRP or a serum iron and total iron binding capacity. Next slide. Thyroid dysfunction occurs with great incidence, high incidence in Down syndrome from 3% in infancy increasing to 50% by adulthood. Hypothyroidism can be congenital or acquired, and additionally, antithyroid antibodies, another autoimmune disorder, are positive in 13 to 39% of, of persons with Down syndrome. So um, additionally, hyperthyroidism does occur and may be, may be presenting as a behavioral concern. Next slide. So um, hypothyroidism is important to detect um, as soon as it occurs because it's so treatable. And in the newborn period, um, it's important to know what is uh, the state each state does for the newborn screen. If the state only measures a free T4, it's important to obtain a TSH to avoid missing congenital hypothyroidism, and of course, always verifying the newborn screen results. Um, we then can recommend continuing to screen with the TSH at 6 and 12 months, and then annually thereafter, of course, sooner, anytime there are suspicion of symptoms that would result in a concern for thyroid dysfunction. Our neonatologists are very aware that, um, very, that uh, sick neonates may present with hypothyroidism and may well check that much more frequently. Frustrating to families and clinicians is that transient elevations of TSH are common. And when 
that then has to be followed up in six to eight weeks to ensure that it's not, and it is just a transient elevation of the TSH and obtaining an antithyroid antibody if that TSH is persistently elevated um, when it is not in a high enough range to warrant treatment. And when the antithyroid antibodies are elevated, obtaining TSH every six months because those children are at greater risk of later thyroid disease. Next slide. Since the last 2011 iteration of the Academy's uh, um, guidance for Down syndrome, the uh, Down syndrome-specific growth charts are published and are available from the cdc.gov. Um, I have plotted for you a patient, um, a little boy on the left, um, and you'll notice that his uh, growth and weight trajectories are at the low or below the lowest um, on the Down syndrome, on the down, uh, CDC WHO growth chart. But when I plot this child on the uh, Down syndrome specific charts for weight and height, he is on the curves with a very similar trajectory. Next slide. It's very reassuring and helpful to share with family the comparison of the WHO and CDC charts with the uh, specific Down syndrome specific charts because the trends for Down syndrome are very similar. But when they do, when they deviate from the normal trajectories, it is of course important to then explore what the potential causes would be. It's recommended to use the Down syndrome weight to length percentiles from birth to age three as they are available. And it's also been noted that after the age of 10, using the CDC WHO BMI is a better reflection of adiposity. Next slide. So pediatricians are um, uh, are the are experts in nutrition and will be called upon to facilitate help with poor weight gain in children with feeding problems or heart disease, as well as excessive weight gain that it can, can occur in late infancy and adolescence. We also note that diets in Down syndrome tend to be low in calcium and iron, so a careful assessment of um, dietary intake in those regards. Is, is important to implement if there are needs. And then the long-term goal, of course, is to establish healthy patterns for activity and diet. Next slide. So feeding challenges and swallowing dysfunction are common and referral for a skilled feeding evaluation or potentially a video feeding study um, should be undertaken if there has been marked hypotonia, the infant is born preterm and is having slow feeding anytime there is choking or desaturation with feeds, recurrent or persistent respiratory problems that could be related to feeding, and any unexplained slow rate of weight gain. Next slide. Airway, 
plays an important role in the life of many children because their airways are small. So in the very, in infancy, we monitor for strider, wheezing, noisy breathing, and especially noting if that's contributing to cardiorespiratory or feeding problems. And I should mention that obtaining a car seat study prior to hospital discharge in the presence of hypotonia or a history of cardiac surgery um, is important because these infants, when positioned semi-reclined in their car seat, may experience oxygen desaturation or apnea and further intervention is important. Um, in the first six months of life, discussing symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea with parents and referring anytime those symptoms are present. Next slide. Um, the throughout childhood and adolescence, reviewing, reviewing those symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea at all well child visits for heavy breathing, snoring, uncommon sleep positions. These children will often sit, sleep sitting up with their head plopped forward between their legs. Um, frequent night awakenings can be symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea. Um, daytime sleepiness, apnea, behavior, and even, and especially behavior problems because, um, with the lack of good sleep, it may be manifested with, um, behavior abnormalities and referral to an assessment by a physician with expertise in pediatric sleep if symptoms are present is important. We want to also remember that obesity is a risk factor for obstructive sleep apnea. Next slide. Having said all that, we also know that there's poor correlation between the parent report and polysomnograms or sleep studies, which are the gold standard for determining quality of sleep. Hence, recommendation is that between the ages of three and four, every child with Down syndrome have a sleep study. And Often, when detected, interventions such as a TNA has been done to repeat that sleep study three to six months following that TNA because it's often forgotten by our otolaryngologists, but it often doesn't, the TNA alone um, may not resolve the problem and further intervention may be helpful. Next slide. Um, gastrointestinal concerns are high on the hip parade of parents' worries. And as clinicians, we know that duodenal atresia, anorectal atresia, and stenosis, duodenal webs occur very frequently in infants with Down syndrome greater than the general population. But constipation is a major problem that parents encounter. And this may be related to restricted diet or limited fluid intake low tone, that um, diastasis recti I showed you in the early slides, as well as hypothyroidism also are um, come, uh, associated with constipation, as is Hirschsprung disease. And we need to remember that while it is um, an uncommon, less than 1%, it still is increased over the general population and can manifest as a short segment Hirschsprung um, in, the later, in later childhood. Next slide. 
Celiac disease does occur in about 5% of individuals with Down syndrome. And while we don't recommend routine screening, we do recommend a very low um, threshold for consideration of the diagnosis in children over the age of one who are on a gluten-containing diet. And many of our families electively um, put children on gluten-free diets, so it isn't um, impact, doesn't impact this. But when there are potentially related symptoms ranging from diarrhea, protracted, untreatable with usual measures for constipation, slow growth, unexplained failure to thrive, anemia, abdominal pain or bleeding, and then refractory developmental or behavioral problems um, may well be associated with celiac disease. So testing, next slide. Um, those children who are on a gluten-containing diet, when symptoms are present, obtaining a tissue transglutaminase IgA and a quantitative IgA to validate the uh, tissue transglutaminase. And when those ab- findings are abnormal, of course, referring for subspecialty assessment. Next slide. Um, Hearing assessment, and in the context of the two previous um, wonderful discussions, um, I wonder about the applications for uh, communication development in Down syndrome, but I tell parents that of a thing they should go home and worry about after cardiac and uh, feeding um, issues is that their child have normal hearing because that's so critical for communication development. Um, review of newborn hearing screen is critical. And if it's failed, obtaining an AVR or otoacoustic emission test and prompt referral to an otolaryngologist and for early intervention is essential. Um, after Additionally, it's recommended that at age six months, that infant be rescreened if they pass their newborn hearing screen. And then at a year, we attempt behavioral audiogram, but may need even then an ABR. And that every year between the ages of one and five, until they can do ear-specific testing with a headphone, they obtain a behavioral audiogram and a tympanum tympanometry um, every six months. That mid-phase hypoplasia causes a high significant, high incidence of middle ear fluid and hearing impairment that can affect speech and communication as well as even balance and um, motor skill development. After the ear-specific testing is possible, obtaining an ear-specific testing annually throughout childhood and adolescence. And of course, if the child is treated for middle ear disease with, say, myringotomy tubes, then testing that hearing promptly after treatment to ensure that it has resulted in correction of the hearing problem because other hearing problems occur, such as sensory neurohearing loss. So um, careful assessment of hearing throughout childhood um, is can be very important for children. Next slide. Um, The other sensory input component of good quality care is ophthalmologic evaluation. And in the newborn period, assessing for cataracts with a a red reflex, um, followed by a referral to an ophthalmologist in that first six months of life for evaluation for 
so many conditions, including strabismus, cataracts, nasolacrimal duct obstruction, refractive errors, glaucoma, nystagmus. And the ophthalmologists at the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend photoscreening, if that's available, at every well child visit. And if photoscreening is abnormal, of course, referral to an ophthalmologist, but um, also annually by that uh, ophthalmologist that is experienced in managing children with disabilities um, if that photo screening is not available. Um, care by an ophthalmologist for new onset of cataracts, refractive errors, strabismus, and even into puberty, keratoconus occurs in 1% to 3%, 13%. So um, ophthalmologic care is an important aspect of management um, that will improve outcomes for children with Down syndrome. Next slide. Atlantoaxial instability, um, compression of the first and second, usually the first and second um, cervical um, vertebrae against the spinal cord um, has an increased risk in Down syndrome and about one to 2% are symptomatic. The recommendations for this were greatly modified in the 2011 version of the AAP guidance. And the uh, reasons are that the routine x-rays, which we in the old days, I say did, um, does not meet criteria for a screen. A plain x-ray is not predictive of children at increased risk. You may have a normal film and one month later have significant symptoms. And while an MRI or canal width on CAT scan may be more predictive, but it really doesn't mean it's too invasive um, uh, for a screen. So obtaining a history and a physical examination at each well-child visit is important. And when there are symptoms, obtaining a plain lateral neck radiograph in neutral, neutral position and referral to a subspecialist if it's abnormal. Next slide. So in the first months of life, recommending, discussing with parents uh, the positioning to avoid excessive extension or flexion of the spine during anesthesia, surgical, or radiologic procedures. And our subspecialists generally um, include that and refer to it as universal precautions. This doesn't mean parents shouldn't do pull-to-sit exercises and things that therapists typically recommend. Next slide. Um, at each well-child visit, however, a careful history and physical examination for any myelopathic signs um, that could be assessed as possibly attributable to a spinal cord impingement. And there is a list of things that we instruct parents to contact the physician for any change in gait or use of their arms or hands. I had a preschool teacher who called the mom and said she used to be able to cut with scissors and now she just can't do that. Well, indeed, it was impingement of the cervical spine that caused weakness in the arms and hands. Any change in potty trained children in bowel or bladder function, unexplained accidents, neck pain, head tilt, torticollis, our children may not tell us that they have pain, but they may be actually protecting their head. And then any change in general function and that could be attributable to new onset or weakness should call attention to um, this as a possibility. Next slide. So 
If symptoms of myelopathy are present, obtaining a plain lateral neck radiograph in neutral position only, and if it's abnormal, stop there. No further imaging. Refer as soon as possible to a pediatric neurosurgeon or a pediatric orthopedic surgeon with experience and expertise in managing atlantoaxial instability is essential because this is important to treat to prevent progression of symptoms. Next slide. So um, parents often ask, about sports participation. And we all know that contact sports, football, soccer, gymnastics, usually in the older ages, may have an increased risk of spinal cord injury. So <clears throat> modifying our interventions in that regard may be helpful. Um, trampolines should be avoided by all children with or without Down syndrome, unless it's under a structured training program with supervision and safety. And I would refer you to the American Academy of Pediatrics policy on trampoline use for additional guidance. Special Olympics has followed the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations regarding AAI, and they require a documented physical examination, including neurologic findings for participation in their sports. Next slide. So <clears throat> encouraging normal activity is, is so important. And this is what was restricted when we were obtaining x-rays on every child at age three and having um, unusual or suspicious findings. They were often even restricted from uh, participating in school physical education. Next slide. I provide for you in the uh, syllabus um, much of these, much of this information, including the slides, are there for your for review. But this is a handout that we use for families, and you're welcome to take it and use it. It's also in the AAP's um, uh, health guidance um, information uh, at the um, healthychildren.org website. Next slide. So one of the areas of expanded information is that of Down syndrome and autism as well and dual diagnoses. And there is an increased risk over the general population, seven to 19%, depending on your studies. But the diagnosis sadly is often delayed, attributed to it's just the Down syndrome. When in reality, <clears throat> there are symptoms that may be present and detectable as early as two and three years. Using a standard screening tools for autism and screening between the ages of 18 and 24 months is recommended. And none of these tools, we know, have been well studied in Down syndrome. But we also, and we also recognize that children with autism and Down syndrome have better imitation relating and receptive skills than kids with um, poorer language and cognitive skills. But, um, and they're, <clears throat> but then, then other children with Down syndrome. So referring for appropriate evaluation and intervention and treatment is, is as soon as possible is important. Next slide. Behavior is often brought to the attention of clinicians and reviewing child's behavior and social progress at each visit is important. Addition, uh, certainly the concerns for autism or 
and prompt referral, as well as for symptoms of ADHD, anxiety, um, and, and very commonly obsessive compulsive behaviors are part of, um, or truly are part of Down syndrome behavior patterns. But when they interfere with function, non-compliance and wandering, additional intervention may be helpful. Also newly, um, relatively newly uh, enhanced has been awareness of the Down syndrome regression disorder, which results in acute loss of developmental skills, self-help skills, onset of anorexia, um, catatonia, and those youngsters manifesting that should be brought to prompt attention of skilled um, psychologists and psychiatrists with familiarity with this condition and its management. Additionally, neurologic disorders such as seizures, including um, infantile spasms, shuddering, moya-moya disease um, should be uh, brought to the awareness of of appropriate intervention whenever present. Next slide. So behavior, any behavior problems um, frequently uh, contributed to by medical conditions. So ruling out medical problems, including thyroid disease, celiac disease, sleep apnea, as we discussed before, gastroesophageal reflux constipation should be part of the evaluation for any child with a behavior concern. Next slide. So we know that for every behavior, there's a reason, but that constant can be very difficult to discern. So the intervention needs to be developmentally appropriate. And uh, discussing with families where they feel their child is, if only I find that mothers are really spot on in knowing what developmental level their child is functioning. And we can then reverse back to what kind of developmental um, behavioral intervention would be appropriate for that age child. It can be helpful. Treatment options are dependent, of course, and the resources and the nature of the concern. But any whenever a medication is recommended or considered, the child, it's important to know that the child with Down syndrome may have a greater sensitivity and a different response. So we recommend start low, go slow as you introduce medications. Next slide. Early intervention, we all are familiar with the zero to three in the least restrictive environment, but helping parents understand that the professional therapists are really the consultants and the parents are the primary therapists um, can be important and helpful. And next slide. <clears throat> next slide. So this is true also for the IEP. And while this is the primary tool for outlining school interventions, parents really benefit from help with involvement in that process. I find families simply do not know that they are they have every right and responsibility to um, share in their opinions of what's important for their child and ensuring that the program optimizes interventions that are going to be important and helpful. So including appropriate educational goals, including role models, um, children with Down syndrome benefit so much from imitation that involvement with um, in de- typically developing 
teen children wherever possible um, in using utilizing inclusion and peer-to-peer -peer interactions is important. Next slide. Um, <clears throat> I also ensure that families know that related services, including transportation and um, nutrition are part, can be and should be part of the IEP. So if I have a child who has a weight gain um, import, uh, problem, um, <clears throat> mother may not be aware that this child is not only getting breakfast at home, but he's eating another breakfast at school. And at lunch, he doesn't eat his lunch, but he also shares with the children that are next to him. So when it's part, I just simply write a prescription and tell parents, give this to school and tell your teacher this needs to be part of his IEP um, and that they can utilize a dietary consultant. Schools don't have dietitians, but they can consult with them and determine what is an appropriate lunch and beverage for this child. Um, next slide. Transition is an important component and emphasized greatly. And I refer you back to the document of the health guidance from the academy for a full discussion. But there is an enhanced emphasis on preparation for transition times. And that um, it begins in infancy and early childhood, encouraging parenting with the future in mind. So transition from early intervention to developmental preschool. From elementary school to a middle school where typically children have to go from class to class and from high school, of course, into adulthood and, um, and uh, adult health care. This should include self-help skills, gender identity, social boundaries, sexuality, and sexual health, including the school program, as I said before, with appropriate goals and interventions in mind, and ensuring the family is aware of all the community and financial resources that are available to them. We want to help families plan for future social activities for their young people, employment, transition, and of course, adult health care. And wherever possible, using shared decision-making for education, guardianship, and long-term financial planning are important. And um, I refer you to the references in your, um, in your syllabus for additional help with this. Next slide. Um, I'm giving you a tremendous amount of medical information, but and it can be very difficult to remember all of those things, especially if one's only seeing a few patients. So the um, guidance provides a health summary, and you can go by age and look down for the things that are targeted for intervention, as well as making sure we haven't missed anything in the younger age groups. This document is included in the health guidance um, guideline. Next slide. I want to make sure everyone is aware of the American Academy's website, healthychildren.org, which provides information for families um, it is both um, written and auditory, and it's both in English, and you can toggle to Spanish, and it includes checklists, which actually in our clinic, we hand out to the families to give them for um, a reference for age-appropriate discussion with their clinicians. Next slide. For those of you 
um, who take care of many patients with Down syndrome, you should be um, familiar with Dismig USA, Down Syndrome Medical Interest Group, which is a multidisciplinary organization with an annual meeting and a wonderful listserv for members. And I would refer you to look at their website and see if that's appropriate for you. Next slide. So I think we stop there. And um, if there, I think we'll have some time for questions. Thank you very much, Dr. Bull, uh, for discussing Down syndrome and, and the elevated risk for certain co-occurring conditions, which I suspect may occur at certain ages over the lifespan. Um, and, you know, as you were telling us this, I was thinking in my mind, you know, are there, it, it seems like following a child with Down syndrome, you have to be aware of so many different things and whether you would recommend um, that all children with Down syndrome also have a Down syndrome specialist uh, who would see them on a, you know, not, not as frequently as the primary care pediatrician, but on a somewhat regular basis. Well, perhaps I'm a little prejudiced because that's exactly what I do and what our program does. We provide, a cons we, we, we serve as consultants to the primary care. Every child needs that primary care physician. And I think it's dependent on the primary care, whether they feel comfortable with all of the things and can and take the time to um, review um, with the resources that I provided today that should be possible. There are primary care physicians who actually see many children with Down syndrome and feel very comfortable with that and may not need um, the additional support of a Down syndrome specialty area, or maybe they need to use them only on a consultant basis if there's a new onset behavior problem or they want some additional questions. So I think it's individualized, but... There's uh, one question um, uh, in the Q&A about uh, the age pattern for testicular cancer. And I think the question has to do with, when, you know, when do you expect that testicular cancer may uh, Yes. Arise? So the age um, expectancy for testicular cancer, remember, it's, it's, it's still rare, but it's slightly greater in, um, statistically in Down syndrome than the general population is in um, later adolescence and uh, certainly adulthood through adulthood. So um, what I mentioned was examining testicles is that is, is that establishes a pattern of evaluation that will make the um, child and therefore adult um, comfortable with that as part of the normal evaluation for um, their well child um, and well adult um, uh, assessment. Thank you. And I think there's one more question and I'll read this to you. Uh, so you've private, you've provided, oh, thank you very much, so much. You've provided many tools and information. Are there major sex specific disease manifestations that are important to keep in mind as well? or a good place to get this information. So I think, of course, testicular cancer was one. I um, am not aware of any data that has looked at other spe sex-specific um, um, conditions of which to be aware. Having said that, <laughs> that doesn't mean they don't exist. Um, 
And I, I do want to emphasize how much there has been in um, advancement in research in Down syndrome. There's Down syndrome-specific funding through the NIH. And I would refer, I didn't include a slide, but DS Connect um, is the NIH registry for Down syndrome. And in all conditions where there has been a registry, there has been improvement in outcomes of research. So um, we're very pleased to have had um, this as an ongoing um, opportunity for research. So I don't have a good answer to your question, but I do want to emphasize that there's much hope for the future. Well, Dr. Wolf, thank you so very much uh, for your presentation, and especially, uh, um, I believe you're uh, somewhere um, uh, west of California, uh, and really appreciate you joining us. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.